0: Amen. I'm not sure, but how about those words? Come though you have nothing, he is the offering. How about that? Thank you, Wesley, for your selection of those songs. Very rich during this Advent season. How sad are those words, these words, no one ever came, they never sent anyone. Think about how tragic when someone perishes but they might have been saved had only a rescue team been sent or commissioned and sent. You might remember the Thai soccer team, it was... Five years ago this summer, in June and July, 13 young boys, part of a youth soccer team, were lost in this underground cave for 18 days. In a great effort, and with many man hours, all 13 of those boys were rescued. But you might remember that two of the rescuers lost their lives, gave their lives that those 13 might live. Did you know that apart from Christ and God sending the Son in the fullness of time, we would remain slaves in our sin, forever in bondage, orphans with no father, and paupers with no future? Had Christ not come, we were all doomed. You and I, we were all doomed to perish with no hope. So here's the short version of the big idea this morning. It's this. His sending was our saving. And so you might say no sending, no saving. The long version is this. God sending his son is our salvation and adoption as sons. And if you're a woman or a girl, don't get all tort when you just hear sons. Because that idea of adoption and sons, the point is, it's broader. It's a father for his children. Though maybe there in that first century, it was quite like, if you will, a father and son, but the idea here is a father for his children. So, God sending His Son is our our salvation, and it's our adoption as sons. God sending the Spirit of His Son into our hearts is how we now cry to Him as adopted children, Abba, Father. And that's the lesson from Galatians 4 this morning. So, you might ask... What's the context of Galatians? Because it's always a little bit dangerous to come and excise seven verses out of the middle of one of the apostles' letters. Well, here's the context. Paul was angry, like super angry. He was defensive and protective about the gospel of Christ. Kind of reminds me when uh, maybe you meet up with someone and they have a beef with you, And there's no warm, pleasantries, you know, chit-chat. They just hit you. And that's how Paul opens the book of Galatians. And you would have thought the smoke is really coming out of his ears, right? And he basically says, look, if you or even an angel sent from above is preaching another gospel, which is no gospel at all, anathema, let that person be accursed, Paul was worked up. You think, why? Because God had sent him, had commissioned him for a single purpose, and he tells the Corinthians about this, this is it, to preach the gospel. And his was a gospel of justification by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. And the requirement for for circumcision by the Judaizers was a clear affront to the gospel. That's what we find in the book of Galatians. It was a deadly perversion of it. You might say a clear and present danger in Paul's day. And Paul was having none of it. And so he rose up like a man to defend the gospel against those that would pervert it and twist it. And so you might notice in Galatians 2, Verses 15 and 16, you get Paul's sense here. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And because of that rock-solid truth that was then even affirmed in the Reformation some 500 years ago, but Paul's gripped by this, he wasn't sitting on his hands in this occasion here where it wasn't so much Paul's under or Peter's understanding in the case, because this is, you'll, you'll see Paul mentioned Peter in the book of Galatians, his understanding of the way of salvation, but his application of it into justification. And so whether the historical situation was from Acts 11 or Acts 15, when Paul wrote this letter, it doesn't matter. He was defending the heresy that salvation of Jesus was, that, that, that salvation was Jesus plus circumcision or any form of faith plus a work of the law. So this morning, I'm trying to get my there it is, great. Our theme is explicit in the in the title of my of my message. Here it is, God sent forth his son. And be careful that be, beware of the temptation to think I've heard this so many times before. But there it is in Galatians four four. And I want to demonstrate for us from our passage just how significant it was for the world and for you and me that he did just that. So here's our outline this morning for these seven verses. First, I want us to see the presenting circumstances. That's the key word. The presenting circumstances before God sent his son. We'll see that in the first three verses Of our text. Secondly, I want us to see in verses four and five the perfect timing for when God sent His Son. Okay, you might say perfect timing. So first, the presenting circumstances. Secondly, the perfect timing for when God sent His Son. And then thirdly, from verses six and seven, is the practical the practical result that God sent His Son, or the practical result that arose from God sending His Son. You know the expression as we think of the present circumstances before God sent His Son there in verses 1 through 3. You know this expression, nothing happens in a what? Vacuum, okay. And neither did the Son come into the world into a vacuum. And remember, just for a moment, that we're using a synonym. His coming was the same as God's sending. And you might say that God's loving was expressed in God's sending. In fact, you'll notice in John three sixteen and 17, you know the verse, God so loved the world that He what? He gave. His only begotten Son. And then the next verse, 317, speaks of God sending. So this loving, giving, sending, or like this triad of synonyms that deal with what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But they all point to the same reality. And the circumstances were ripe in the world prior to sending the Son. And the Son's appearance Far different from sometimes that experience, maybe fathers, you've had this. When your children were young and little, when you came home, they nailed you at the door and wrapped their arms around your legs. But as they grow up and get a little older, it's a little bit like uh, dad's home. And hopefully, moms, you're teaching your kids to really run to dad if he's, whoever, it doesn't matter, whoever's coming home, that idea of greeting, Right? This is not passé. This is not like, hey, just another appearance. It was the great Dutch theologian Gerhardus Vos. He said this about the appearance of our Lord Jesus. He said, in character, it was meteoric. Now, for a moment, kids, who knows what's a meteor? What is, do you know what a meteor is? Great. Would you want one to hit the world? No. Yeah, that's right. You know how loud it sounds when someone drops a glass on a granite countertop? Well, just how dynamic it was that the sun and the Word would become flesh. It was meteoric when he appeared. But there had been this 400 long years of silence in what we call the intertestamental period. Between the end of Malachi, you don't think about it a lot, but when you look at the very last chapter of Malachi and flip the page to Matthew 1, you wouldn't believe it, but there's 400 years of silence there. There was what we call the Pax Romana or Roman peace, where the advance of the Roman Empire in that time created kind of this perfect conditions. All all these things were aligning for the gospel also to advance and spread throughout the known world. Maybe you're like me. You think of B.C. as before Christ and A.D. as after Christ. But in a sense, as you look in Galatians chapter 3, Paul gave it another nomenclature. He speaks of before faith in verse 23 of chapter 3. And the coming of faith is a sentiment with until Christ came. And what was the state of things then? Look at Galatians 3.23 for a moment. I actually like to read, I think, through 24. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then as the law was our guardian until Christ came, So so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And he's mixing, in a sense, a little bit of two illustrations. There's the idea of being imprisoned, but there's also the idea of being a minor and not having full access to everything that was yours. And Paul illustrates, though, he illustrates... All of this in a very simple manner. He said, before Christ, the world and we could be compared to someone who was in prison and held captive against their will. Kids, I don't know if you've ever had like play handcuffs, but if you ever really get arrested, and this, I'm not speaking about this from personal experience, but just observing in case you're wondering, you can, you could look me up, right? When they lock that key and they put those cuffs on and it goes clink, like, you're not getting out. And that's how the world was. But he expands, Paul expands this. Not only was the world held captive under the law because the law was only ever designed to condemn and not to empower for obedience. It doesn't redeem. Expands that, though, to talk about a child, what we might call an heir. Now, when I say heir, sometimes I might say, right, not heir, but heir. Someone destined to receive an inheritance from his child. And the illustration makes perfect sense. When we think about the world before faith came and Christ came. While that heir is a child, so kids, let me just say, an heir is simply... Someone who will receive an inheritance that is wealth, that could be money, but it could be things, it could be a company from their parents, from their father. But while that heir, that child is underage, the heir is protected from him or herself by not receiving the inheritance before it is mature enough, Handle it. And it doesn't matter if the little boy or girl even is the eventual owner of a multi billion dollar estate. And this is where the role of the guardian, or that word guardian, is pedagogue. It's someone other than the parent that has this job, and that job is to watch out for the interests of this child. Until a certain age set by the father, which would also mean to restrict that heir, that minor's access to what would rightfully be theirs. That's why Paul uses the expression, though they own everything. So I want you to imagine this, it's because this is where the role of guardian or pegagod comes in. The guardian under orders by the father protects and superintends the heir, the child, until the date of maturity. So I want you to imagine just for a moment, kids, let's say for Christmas tomorrow, you wake up and you go outside, and maybe you're eight or nine years of age, and there is a Lamborghini, which is an Italian supercar, luxury car, in your driveway, bright red, with all the bells and whistles, all right? It's there, and it's got your name on it, all right? But beside the laws for getting your learner's permit and driver's license, which if you're nine, you still have six more years for that and another year of driving with your parents, right, supervised, your parents, if they're wise, might assess that that Lamborghini has just a little bit too much speed, a little bit too much horsepower under the hood, where it'd probably be better if you could drive for about five to eight years with a beater car, like all dented up, rusted, the bottom, you can see through the floor, and you get all your bad stuff out of the way before they give you the keys to the Lamborghini. And what Paul is saying is that the presenting circumstances before God sent his son into the world could be compared to a father and guardian working together to prepare and protect the son for his inheritance. It just wasn't time, right? Like a father who has a guardian saying, You can't give the keys to the Lamborghini until our son or daughter hits this age. So the law, Paul is saying, was our guardian, our pedagogue, that from verse 23 of chapter 3, also. There in verse 2 of chapter 4, until Christ came and justification by faith or through faith was made so clear through the gospel. And it's a good moment to pause. And kids, let's never forget this. Someone has said faith is nothing. Faith is God's gift, but we don't present to God our faith and say, God, now based on my faith, you must save me. God grants faith in his son as a gift. And so when we read in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, faith, right, is the pipe, is the hose through which the grace of God comes to us. But it's not the reason he saves us. It's the instrument of saving us. Not only have we seen then this morning, we see the presenting circumstances before God sent His Son. I want us to see the perfect timing here in verses four through five. It's a second truth. Think about this: in this expression, in the fullness of time. Probably some of you around this time, you're cooking a turkey, and you know how that that whole thing you're 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 based on the weight of your turkey and the way you're cooking it, it's at a set temperature and for so many minutes, and then some of you want to stick a thermometer. And when you say, it's perfect, it's perfectly cooked, that doesn't mean it's as cooked as much as it could be, but it's cooked just to the right point that we'd pull that turkey out of the oven. Well, God sent his son at just the right time in the fullness of of time, like when a cup is filled up where it can take no more. And Paul said it this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He couldn't have timed it better so that we may marvel, and you and I may marvel both at the mystery of the incarnation, but also at its timing. There's a writer of the book of Hebrews that says Jesus was the final Word. He was the great fact. And in fact, Voss, who I quoted earlier, he says this. He says, Jesus didn't so much judge himself to be the great interpreter of things, of all facts, but he says that the writers of the New Testament showed that in fact Jesus was the great fact to be expounded or interpreted. This is in The one on whom the end of the ages has come. The final word, Hebrews one, one, and two. Look at the word there in verse 4. Have you ever noticed that the writers of the ESV don't simply say God sent His Son, but they say sent forth His Son. And they don't simply say God sent the Son or sent forth the Son, but they, that He sent forth His Son, His Son. And this this word, this expression sent forth a little more than sent. It's worth noting. It's more than sending something like I know is happening every day in our cul-de-sac by this stream of vehicles using our cul-de-sac to turn around and stop. And I've seen something like Amazon and FedEx and UPS, and then it looks like our 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 postal our the guy from the post office is making multiple trips this time. Of year and I know stuff is coming stuff is being delivered but there's more here that we can mind if we push the shovel in a little deeper this word that's translated sent forth it's it's a form of sending but it's it's a little bit more and Luke uses it in his gospel in Acts but Paul only uses it twice in all his writings, right here in verse 4 and verse 6. And this is more than a simple, nondescript sending of a message or material or stuff by means of, of transport from point A to point B. I want you to think about this. This is the idea, what's intended when Paul says that, when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His son. The idea here is of taking someone really close and deeply treasured to you, one that you'd hold in an intimate relationship, and then sending him or her on a mission for noble person for like for a noble purpose. How could it be? How could it not be? It it is a little bit like bringing. For a man, a daughter, down an aisle to give away in marriage. I think it looked a little bit in John Patton's biography when he left his parents' home to go to the New Hebrides. And his father walked him down that road and he recalls in his writing that he never remembered, with tears, he never remembered a day growing up in the Patton home that his father did not gather all the children in Mrs. Patton and opened the scriptures and prayed for them and he recalled this with tears. That's John Patton Sr. sending forth his son to the mission field. That's the idea of the father sending forth the son. Let me draw out just a few texts for us to ponder the father and the son for a moment. Just four. I thought, how do the scriptures see that? How do they show that to us? And I'm going to stay completely within John's gospel to do this. For Paul says, God sent forth his Son. Know this, that the Father sent his only Son, begotten, not created, though equal in power, equal in substance, equal in glory. This was the Father." The one of whom Jesus said in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. This was the Son who said in John 16:28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. At the heart of the de- definition of eternal life was a sent Son, for Jesus prayed this. In John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And it was the son who in this final prayer, what we call the high priestly prayer of John 17, he referenced a treasure that was shared from eternity spanning eternity without beginning. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The Word who was with God, John 1-1, was entreating his Father on the precipice of his passion. When he, when he would drink all that the wrath of God had to offer and that had needed to have been born for the sheep that he was committed to redeem, he entreated his father to grant the glory that he had possessed with the father before the world existed. God sent forth his son. His sunset was notably two things, Paul says in Galatians 4. He was born of a woman, and I wouldn't belabor that. We saw that last week, didn't we? From Matthew 1, he was born of a woman. Simply, it was the angel's comfort in the dream to Joseph to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid to take Mary as a wife, That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But she was also, he says of Jesus, not only was he born of a woman, he notes out, he notes there that he was born under the law. And we'll see that expression again in a moment in our third point. This second Adam was born of a woman. He wasn't the son of the first Adam, right? Naturally. And as Jerry Bridges points out, it's an assumption about the atonement that we may see here that first of our Lord Jesus is the second Adam. That an acceptable offering for the atonement, we knew the two things had to be true. Jerry Bridges says the sacrifice must be sinless and therefore must be God. But secondly, the sin bearer must be a man in order to provide the possibility of substitutionary death since God cannot die. And both of these assumptions are realized all the requirements are met in Jesus, truly God, truly man, very God, very man. The Word became flesh, born of woman, conceived in her as a result of a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We come to our final point this morning. Look with me. We've considered, haven't we, the presenting circumstances of God sending His Son. We've seen the perfect timing for when God sent His Son, I want us to see now the practical result. Let me reach back just a moment to verse five before we end up in verses six and seven. There is when, when at this on the precipice of time between before faith came and when faith came, we had read that at that point, if you will, when the cup of time had reached. God sent forth His Son. And He describes Him as born of woman and born under the law, all right? Now, before His pre-incarnate state, or in His pre-incarnate state, He would have been above the law. There was no, there, there was no need to even speak of under the law. But here, fully God, fully man become flesh, pitching his tent, tabernacling among us, he's under the law. And we are in fact saved by both his active obedience, his keeping, obeying the law, as well as his passive obedience, his suffering in our place as a sin offering in our place. But you see in verse 5 the purpose for God sending him forth into the world. And you'll notice here, and it's the same verb when it says God sent forth his son, verse 4, and then we'll see God sent, has sent the spirit of his son. It's the same word. So, you could have translated God has sent forth the spirit of his son. But in the middle there, in verse 6, so we don't overlook it, is the purpose for why God sent forth his son. And that was his plan and purpose of redemption. Now, redemption, or to redeem something, we've talked about that a lot as a church over many years, that it simply means to secure the freedom of a hostage by payment of a hostage, of a ransom price. If, you, if, you're, host, if you're held hostage, you need to be redeemed. And the only way you're redeemed as a hostage is for someone to pay a ransom price to secure your freedom. And the Son of God did that. God did that to buy us back from those who, of us who were under the law rather than being under the law, under the condemnation of the law or under the fallacy of thinking that the way of being right with God is through keeping the law, which we cannot do fully, completely, in a satisfying way to God anyways, God did. And so to think that we, in a legalistic way, if you and I are seeking to keep the law that we might be pleasing to God or might be acceptable to God, is to miss the very point for which God sent his son into the world. But there's a second thing. It says, not only to redeem those who are under the law, but also that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you weren't here, two months ago during our GA on Wednesday night, the last night of our General Assembly, it's Vodi Bakum that took part of Romans 8 that, has, that really corresponds to this. And he made the point, He said, if you ever think of adoption in negative terms and don't recognize that when you're adopted, you're every bit a child as a natural-born child. He said said something like, I double-dog dare you to try to tell me that an adopted kid doesn't have the same rights and privileges that any natural-born child does. And what Paul is saying here, if you've never thought about this, if your thing about the incarnation is more and simply a nativity scene, like a wondrous time of year with this beautiful scene in a creche, and there's a baby and a manger and a father and a mother and there are animals, and soon there will be shepherds abiding in their field, by night and the appearing of an angel and wise men like breakdancing and doing all this over this great news and bringing their gifts to this child that was prophesied in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and spoke about in Isaiah 11. and You've missed it. Incarnation has a straight, solid, black line arrow, all in bold, that points to your adoption into the family of God by a heavenly Father that's promised that everything given to you and promised for you will never be taken away from you. Does that make sense? If you're in Christ, you're in his hand as one of his sheep. And there's nothing about you, as Paul David Tripp says, that could ever be known about you. There's nothing that could ever be done to you that could possibly be done to you that will snatch you out of the hand of your heavenly Father because he has given to you all the rights and privileges of sonship. Now let's finish. I want us to see the practical result that God sent his son into the world. It's there in verses 6 and 7. He says, because your son's God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, a Father. So there's a parallel there. Don't miss this parallelism. God sent forth his son, verse 4, right? How? Born of a woman, born under the law, with this purpose, the purpose of redeeming, the purpose of adopting. And then he says, because you're sons, so God did this, that you might be sons, and now because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. It's what we call the double procession. The spirit is sent by the father, but also by the son. And he says something, Paul says something here that some of you are thinking, I know I found this, this is somewhere else in the Bible. You're right, it's in Romans 8. And it's kind of cool because here in Galatians 4, when Paul says that God, because he's adopted us as sons, and in expression of our status in righteous son, and as a down payment of our future inheritance, you might say elements of which are both present and future, he sent his Spirit into our hearts to take residence there, that having lived by the Spirit, we'd walk by the Spirit, that we'd quench not the Spirit, that we'd we'd be filled with the Spirit, that all the manifest fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control would be expressed because we are Christ and our life is hidden with Christ in God. But Paul says it's the Spirit here in Galatians 4 that's crying for us. It's like when You have two little kids. You ever had this where the older sibling never lets the younger sibling speak? Like you ask the little sibling a question and the older one always speaks. The Spirit is speaking and crying, Abba, Father. But lest you think we don't have a part in that, in Romans 8, it says we cry that. So guess what? He cries, we cry, he helps us cry, Abba. Father. It's the language. It's the spirit. It's the cry. It's the heart of being a son or daughter of the living God. And so God sending his son is vitally connected to us becoming his sons and daughters in living like that's true we must not impose our own and be tempted nor tempted to impose our own poor experiences of human fathers on what god our father has done in sending his son forth into the world, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those that are under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. And he ends this. Who knows this song? I think it's Zach Williams, No Longer a Slave. Does anyone know that song? Few of you know that song. I asked Wesley if he'd sing it for us. He says he's not that good at country music, but maybe sometimes that's a good, I appreciated that you would even consider it. I think he considered it for one second. I said brother, we need to sing No Longer Slave by Zach Williams, or you sing it at the end of this sermon because we come to verse 7. Look at this. Therefore, so, look in verse 7, so then. There's a little word in the Greek text that only ever means one of two things. It's going to Give a purpose or state a result. Think about someone that's only, you'd say, you're only good for two things. Well, this word is only good for two things. And here's the result. Here's the result. As a result, you could translate it, you're no longer a slave. And look back up just for a moment to verse 23 or verse 1. There is a bit of a chiasm here in in Paul's writing because you have slave, son, and then heir, all right? Slave, son, heir. Verse 1 has heir, slave, the child is the son, right? And then at the end of verse 7, slave, son, and heir. Has this God who sent forth His Son into the world has He given you a new heart? Well, then He, by His Spirit, is helping you cry out as an adopted son or daughter, Abba, Father. And so Paul says, "Are you doing that? Then you're no longer a slave. This is the result. You're not a slave." You don't have those handcuffs on you. But you're a son. And you have a father. And you have a father, as someone has said, who could not love you more, nor will not love you less. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. If I told you about the most faithful friend, and I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again. You know the type of friend that's money in the bank? They always do what they say they'll do. They're always where they say they will be. They keep their word. When you're in a pinch, when you're stuck in a slot wall in a slot canyon, and and they could possibly text you, and you could possibly get the text, you'll come. when you say, I can't tell you why, but I need you to come over and I need you to bring $2,000 or I need you to listen to me, you know they'll be there. They are the embodiment of a friend loves at all times. When you read Galatians 4, 7, as we end this message about God sent his forth, sent forth His Son. This is the practical result of God sending forth His Son. We've seen the presenting circumstances. We've seen the perfect timing, but here's the practical result. God is calling us as His people to live not with an impoverished mentality, but to live as though what Peter said in 2 Peter that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so today, if you're downcast and you need a teaspoon of joy, God is able to give that to you because you're an heir. If there's an area where you need to repent and you don't want to, you're really resisting. Your pride is tripping you up big time. When you have hate and disdain in your heart for someone rather than love, and you know that the mark of the Christian, as Francis Schaefer says, is love, and you need love, and you feel like you couldn't find it if your life depended on it, remember, is the Spirit crying in your heart, Abba, Father? Then you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. And if you're an heir, you're like that older brother in Luke 15 that was so upset when the younger brother that blew through all the money came back. And The prodigal father, the the prodigal son's father had to remind that older son, all that I have is yours.